Well, we have come to the very last meeting, haven't we? It always seems like that's where we end up too soon. This has been a rather unusual week for us, my family and myself, because um, we have spent ten whole days in one place. That's pretty amazing for us. We're usually on our road after two days in one meeting heading for the next church, wherever it might be around the United States. And it has been a real privilege for us to spend this uh, week, full week here, meeting with large and small groups, uh, talking about the essentials of the Seventh-day Adventist faith and the gospel. So we began last week with a beautiful weekend. I enjoyed it tremendously, the, week, uh, the, the, the weeknights that we spent here, and I thank you for your willingness to be a special place on this campus with a very unique purpose. Now, don't let it die. Keep it alive. Uh, just one little point. Uh, in addition to our books and tapes, which are available, if you would like a little pamphlet or booklet to take home with you, just come up and ask me afterwards, and I'll be glad to share an item or two with you that might be of some help in your study. Now, the text we read this morning is the focus of our last subject. We want to know this morning exactly what Jesus Christ is doing in the heavenly sanctuary as we speak. What is going on right now today in the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary that matters to me, that matters to us as a group? What difference does it make that Jesus is there in the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary. I'm going to just begin with a short statement from Patriarchs and Prophets, page 357 and 358, that tells us something that we kind of know but we forget. The blood of Christ, while it was to release the repentant sinner from the condemnation of the law, was not to cancel the sin. Is that the way we usually think about it? We usually think of the sin as just being wiped out, gone, done. But the blood of Christ was not to cancel the sin. It did release us from the condemnation and guilt of the sin. It, the sin, would stand on record in the sanctuary until the final atonement. Then, by virtue of the atoning blood of Christ, the sins of all the truly penitent will be blotted from the books of heaven. Thus, the sanctuary will be freed or cleansed from the record of sin. So we want to know exactly what is it that is going on in the final atonement. The word final atonement is not a word used in Christianity. That phrase doesn't exist. In all Christian thinking, the atonement was completed at the cross, finished, no more needing to be done, everything settled, Jesus is going to come whenever he chooses after that. Nothing to be decided. Final atonement is probably the biggest concept that has been hit by evangelical scholars when they come to us in the Seventh-day Adventist Church and suggest that we are truly not mainstream Christians at all because of our belief in this final atonement. So if we're going to believe in it, we better know why. I'm going to take you back to someone that... Uh, some of you older ones in Adventism uh, know the name of. The name is Robert Brinsmead, a name that has factored into Adventism for over 40 years now. But I'm going to take you way back to the 60s in which he said something like this. 
the concept of the final atonement is the one and only contribution that Adventists have made in Christian theology. Now that's an interesting statement. You think about it. We have not contributed our major doctrines. We have borrowed our major doctrines from others, all of them. But when it comes to the sanctuary and especially the final work in the heavenly sanctuary, we didn't borrow that from anyone else. It wasn't there. There must be a refusal to be embarrassed with this peculiar teaching. Ah, have we become embarrassed? I'm afraid we have. When the attacks have come our way, what do you mean final atonement? It was all completed at the cross. We have begun to back off. And we have said, well, it just means the benefits of the cross are being mediated from the heavenly sanctuary. It, and we've explained it this way and that way to make it less objectionable to those who talk to us in a critical way. We have become embarrassed by it. Do you hear the term very much anymore? Final atonement? Does anybody really talk about it? Any discussions on it? It's quite rare. And then he said, many now teach that the saints will not be sinless until the second advent of Christ. But such a teaching must result in casting aside the doctrine of a cleansed sanctuary before Jesus comes. It must lead to a rejection of the final atonement in the most holy place and the special sealing to take place in the minds of the 144,000. You begin to see how many things are linked together here? 144,000, sealing, final atonement, cleansed sanctuary, all predicated on the fact that there will be a group of sinless people before Jesus comes. When one pin is removed, the others begin to crumble. And all of a sudden, we don't have the Adventist message as we used to have it. So we want to know. We want to know what that means. Ellen White said it this way. She said, All, not some, all need to become more intelligent in regard to the work of the atonement which is going on in the sanctuary above, that atonement, when this grand truth is seen and understood, those who hold it will work in harmony with Christ to prepare a people to stand in the great day of God and their efforts will be successful. When will we succeed in our mission? When will the work go as God intended it to go? When this grand truth, the grand truth of the final atonement that is going on in the sanctuary above, when it is seen and understood. If we don't talk about it, if we explain it away, if we soft soap it by saying, well, we really don't mean that like it sounds, is that seeing and understanding it? Do we wonder why our work has been less than successful? We are ignoring the heart and soul of what makes Adventism different and unique and special and with a special message to share to the world that no one else is preaching. How can we really fulfill our mission? Oh yes, I'm sorry, the reference for it is Testimonies, Volume 5, page 575. We need to know what, what is going on in that sanctuary. All right, now... I am not going to share anything new with you this morning. Nothing that I say is new light. There is no new ground. I have not researched new material and found things that no one else has found before. What I'm going to share with you comes from way back in Adventism, 
What I'm going to share right now is over 50 years old in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. You have to go back and find an out-of-print book called The Sanctuary and Its Service, The Sanctuary Service by M. L. Andreasen, and go find the last chapter in that book. And it will tell you more than perhaps you have ever read before about the final atonement. And I'm going to share some excerpts, and we're going to talk about them as we go through. The final demonstration of what the gospel can do for humanity and in humanity is still in the future. Well, how can that be? Look at the great missionary spirit of the first century when Paul and Peter and the apostles went out sharing the message and the gospel went to the entire civilized world in that generation. And what about the time of the Millerite movement? How can it be that the final demonstration is still in the future? Christ showed the way. He took a human body and in that body demonstrated the power of God. Men are to follow his example and prove that what God did in Christ, he can do in every human being who submits to him. Huge, huge statement right there. The world is awaiting this demonstration. Why is it that um, non-Christian people are not too excited about Christians when they come and talk to them about Christ sometimes? Could it be that they're not seeing a very good demonstration of what Christianity really is all about? Sometimes the standards of Christian missionaries are lower than the standards of the people that they're coming to win to Christ. And how can that be exciting to lower one's standard to become a Christian? The witness of Christians has not been a powerful witness to Jesus Christ, has it? It's been a witness to Christian westernized culture more than to the message in the person of Jesus Christ, unfortunately. And I'm afraid that the world is awaiting a demonstration of true Christianity, true Christ-likeness. When it has been accomplished, the end will come. Another huge statement. When the demonstration is clearly seen by the world, the end will come. God will have fulfilled his plan. He will have shown himself true and Satan a liar. His government will stand vindicated. Well, that's the first paragraph of that last chapter. A major, major statement of what we are and what our purpose is as the last generation. Now, he continues, The plan of salvation must of necessity include not only forgiveness of sin, but complete restoration. Salvation from sin is more than forgiveness of sin. Forgiveness presupposes sin and is conditioned upon breaking with it. Sanctification is separation from sin and indicates deliverance from its power and victory over it. The first is a means to neutralize the effect of sin. The second is a restoration of power for complete victory. And there you have the essence of the difference between those two Gospels that we talked about last weekend. That everyone believes in the forgiveness of God to forgive our sins and our guilt. That is a given. There is no question about that. But there is a decided de-emphasis of deliverance from sin in the Christian gospel. Deliverance from sin seems to be that impossible dream that we all wish for, hope for, pray for, and never will achieve. But there is something more than forgiveness of sin. There is restoration, which is the heart and soul of the biblical gospel. Thus it shall be with the last generation of men living on the earth. 
Through them, God's final demonstration of what he can do with humanity will be given. He will take the weakest of the weak, those bearing the sins of their forefathers, and in them show the power of God. My friends, do you feel fairly weak spiritually? Do you feel like you slip and fall so easily? Do you feel like there's no reserve power? Those are you are the ones that God wants most directly. Where does God do his greatest work? In impossible situations. He brings Moses and the Israelites right up to the Red Sea, the mountains to one side, and the, Israel, and the, and the Egyptian army behind them. He deliberately took them there. He could have led them somewhere else. He took them to the impossible situation to show that it was not human devising and not human ingenuity and not human planning, but it was God's power that would get them through. And that's what he's going to do when everyone, including the watching universe, says these are the worst possible subjects. You're going to take them and make them a witness for the rest of eternity? Those people living in the 20th and the 21st centuries? Impossible. The weakest of the weak. They will be subjected to every temptation, but they will not yield. They will demonstrate that it is possible to live without sin, the very demonstration for which the world has been looking and for which God has been preparing. It will become evident to all that the gospel really can save to the uttermost. God has found true in his sayings. That's the issue, isn't it? Is the gospel just a covering up of what the, de the defects that God can't change? Or is God going to remove, remove those defects from the characters of his children? It is in the last generation of men living on the earth that God's power unto sanctification will stand fully revealed. That demonstration is God's vindication. Notice, I don't vindicate God and you don't vindicate God. God vindicates himself through you and me. Let us never get that twisted around. There is a huge charge that we're trying to do something for God, and that is a human works effort. No, it is God working in us as we give him permission to do the impossible in and through us. It clears him of any and all charges which Satan has placed against him. In the last generation, God is vindicated and Satan defeated. And that's what it's all about, isn't it? The charges of Satan against the character and the law of God and God's plan. Well, getting along farther in this chapter... The demonstration which God intends to make with the last generation on earth means much, both to the people and to God. Can God's law really be kept? That is a vital question. Many deny that it can be done. That's the Christian world. Others glibly say it can. Could that be us? Could it? Oh, yes, we keep the law. We keep the law. We post it on our, on our chapels. We put it on our, in, in, a, in a plaque. Can God's law really be kept? When the whole question of commandment keeping is considered, the problem assumes large proportions. God's law is exceedingly broad. It takes cognizance of the thoughts and intents of the heart. It judges motives as well as acts, thoughts as well as words. Commandment keeping means entire sanctification, a holy life, unswerving allegiance to right, entire separation from sin and victory over it. Well, may mortal man cry out, who is sufficient for these things? Let's not be too quick to say, we keep the law. That is the highest of all claims that could ever be made. 
and keeping the law is a very is, is an impossible dream by human strength alone yet to produce a people that will keep the law is the task which God has set himself and which he expects to accomplish once again let's focus on that God has set that as his task and he is going to accomplish it we are just the willing ones there are two words which Seventh-day Adventists need to learn memorize and speak over and over again the two words are yes Lord when God speaks and wants to work we say yes Lord not but Lord but well well Lord uh, I'm a uh, Lord I'm not sure I can't Lord oh we well, got to get rid of all that vocabulary and learn two words yes Lord when God speaks clearly even if we can't figure out why he's saying that but if we're sure he's saying it that's the key isn't it being sure he's saying it not a human interpretation of what God is saying when God says something we say thank you Lord yes Lord when the statement and challenge are issued by Satan no one can keep the law it's impossible if there be any that can do it or that have done it show them to me where are they that keep the commandments God will quietly answer I love that there is no railing against Satan there is no arguing with Satan God will quietly answer here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus you see he can't say that yet he says, here are they that want to keep the commandments of God. Here are they that profess to keep the commandments of God. But one day, one day, he'll be able to say, here they are. They keep the commandments of God. And Satan will stand defeated. When God commands men to keep his law, it does not serve the purpose he has in mind to have only a few keep it, just enough to show it can be done. It is not in line with God's character to pick outstanding men of strong purpose and superb training and demonstrate through them what he can do. It is much more in harmony with his plan to make his requirements such that even the weakest need not fail, so that none can ever say that God demands that which can be done by only a few. It is for this reason that God has reserved his greatest demonstration for the last generation. This generation bears the results of accumulated sins. If any are weak, they are. If any suffer from inherited tendencies, they do. If any have an excuse because of weakness of any kind, they have. If therefore these can keep the commandments, there is no excuse for anyone in any other generation not doing so also. We don't think of ourselves that way, do we? We think of ourselves as a pretty intelligent generation. We have gone to the moon. We have a space shuttle. We have a telescope out there in space that takes pictures of the galaxy. We have conquered the diseases of mankind and created a few others. <laughs> we are the intelligent, the advanced ones. Ah, but that's not the way it really is, my friends. We are bearing within us Oh, where our minds might be helped by all the technological advances so that we are far more advanced than the generations that preceded us. But what, happened? what about the heart? What about our nature? Is it improving? The weakest of the weak. We'd better understand that and admit it. Get rid of this pride of self-sufficiency that we have something to boast of and realize 
but there is very little in us that is worth commending. Ellen White comments, the greatest manifestation of the power of God is seen in human nature brought to, per to the perfection of the character of Christ. That is the greatest manifestation of God's power. That's bigger than raising a person from the dead. Ministry of Healing, page 36. Near the end of this chapter, he says, God is ready for the challenge. He has bided his time. The supreme exhibition has been reserved until the final contest. Out of the last generation, God will select his chosen ones, not the strong or the mighty, not the honored or the rich, not the wise or the learned, but common, ordinary people will God take and through and by them make his demonstration. Satan has claimed that those who in the past have served God have done so from mercenary motives, that God has pampered them and that he, Satan, has not had free access to them. If he were given full permission to press his case, they also would be won over. But he charges that God is afraid to let him do this. Give me a fair chance, Satan says, and I will win out. And so to silence forever Satan's charges, to make it evident that his people are serving him from motives of loyalty and right without reference to reward. Let's stop right there. What is our motivation for being Seventh-day Adventists today? Is it to be translated? Is it to escape the grave? Is it to be enjoying the beauties of heaven? To escape all of the pressures of this earth, be they student tests or family problems or work or whatever, or suffering or pain? What is our motivation for being Seventh-day Adventists and even more importantly for believing in the name and power of Jesus Christ? Is it without reference to reward? The last generation... The last generation will learn the song of Moses and the Lamb. Moses and Jesus both agreed on one thing. All that matters is God winning the great controversy. Whether I survive or not is not the issue. Whether I walk the streets of gold is not what I am being, what I'm a Christian for. All that matters is that babies stop dying just because there's not enough food to fill their stomach that this world does not continue in the cycle of pain, misery, and suffering that Satan has brought upon it. All that matters is that God unseats Satan from his claimed ownership of this earth without reference to reward. That's what we're talking about here. To clear his own name and the character of the, and character of the charges of injustice and arbitrariness to show to angels and men that his law can be kept by the weakest of men under the most discouraging circumstances, God permits Satan in the last generation to try his people to the utmost. They will be threatened and tortured and persecuted. They will stand face to face with death in the issuance of the decree to worship the beast and his image, but they will not yield. They are willing to die rather than to sin. Will they stand the test? Dehumanize it seems impossible. If only God would come to their rescue, all would be well. They are determined to resist the evil one. If need be, they will die, but they will not sin. Satan has no power and never has had to make any man sin. Are we clear on that? Satan does not have power to make you sin. He can tempt, he can seduce, he can threaten, but he cannot compel. He is a defeated foe. He does not have the right to manipulate your mind. He can manipulate your circumstances, 
but he cannot manipulate your mind. And now God demonstrates through the weakest of the weak that there is no excuse and never has been any for sinning. If men in the last generation can successfully repel Satan's attack, if they can do this with all the odds against them and the sanctuary closed, what excuse is there for men's ever sinning? Why does God close down the sanctuary? So it is crystal clear to an entire watching universe that there are no special favors under the table for favoritism. Everyone will know that this is a do-or-die situation. Either God has full power or he has no power. All or nothing. And God is going to make that as clear as he can. The matter of greatest importance in the universe is not the salvation of men, important as that may seem. The most important thing is the clearing of God's name from the false accusations made by Satan. We've not had that one very clear either, have we? Soul winning has been the dominant reason for the existence of the Seventh-day Adventist Church in all of our material presented, all the way through my training, through academy, through college, through seminary. That was presented to me as the number one reason for the existence of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. The most important reason, the matter of greatest importance, is not the salvation of men. The controversy is drawing to a close. God is preparing his people for the last great conflict. Satan is also getting ready. The issue is before us and will be decided in the lives of God's people. God is depending upon us as he did upon Job. Is his confidence well placed? God is resting his honor upon weak human beings and their willingness to respond, as incredible as that sounds. And that thought is repugnant to most Christians. How can God place his success and his victory over Satan in the hands of weak human beings? Impossible. Because, you see, most Christians and even many Adventists are more predestinationists than we would like to admit. It's all cut and dried. God has supreme power. He'll take care of it. He'll come when he wants to. The time is set. We can't influence that. That's predestinationism, friends. It's not free choice. Free choice means God places, God takes a risk in letting us participate in the work of winning the great controversy. Is his confidence well placed? It is a wonderful privilege vouchsafed this people to help clear God's name by our testimony. It is wonderful that we are permitted to testify for him. It must never be forgotten, however, that this testimony is a testimony of life, not merely of words. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. It was so with Christ, it must be so with us. Our life should be a light, as his life was. To give people the light is more than to hand them a tract. Our life is the light. As we live, we give light to others. Without life, without our living the light, our words abide alone. But as our life becomes light, our words become effective. Can we do away with the arguing and the complaining and the criticizing and all of the great theologizing that we do and come down to one basic level? Does our life reflect the life of Christ when we talk to our neighbors? Do we show the Spirit of Christ when we interact in our daily activities? 
all the great knowledge that we possess and the knowledge of what prophecy will will how the prophecies will be fulfilled in the book of revelation and if we've got daniel 11 all figured out exactly as it'll occur right down to the end of the last verse and we have not love we are sounding brass and tinkling cymbals let us concentrate not on figuring out all the details of either theology or prophecy as much as living what we have found in Jesus Christ's life. He'll lead us to truth. He'll get us to truth if that life is lived in, the, in harmony with his will. All this is closely connected with the work of the Day of Atonement. That's the first time we've even mentioned that word so far. The Day of Atonement. On that day, the people of Israel, having confessed their sins, were completely cleansed. They had already been forgiven. Now sin was separated from them. They were holy and without blame. The camp of Israel was clean. We are now living in the great antitypical day of the cleansing of the sanctuary. Every sin must be confessed and by faith be sent beforehand to judgment. As the high priest enters into the most holy, so God's people now are to stand face to face with God. They must know that every sin is confessed, that no stain of evil remains. And now the sentence which is the one sentence I hope you will remember from today. The cleansing of the sanctuary in heaven is dependent upon the cleansing of God's people on earth. That is a huge, huge statement. That's radical. The cleansing of God's sanctuary in heaven, His work of the final atonement is dependent upon the cleansing of God's people on earth. But you think about it, and how else could it be? How could God cleanse His sanctuary from all sin, blot out the records of sin, clean every record out, and then throw it away on the, backs of, on the back of Satan if we were still pouring up our confessions to heaven that needed continual treatment, forgiveness, handling by the blood of Jesus Christ? How could He clean it up? One more would be coming in. Clean that one up, one more would be coming in. It's got to stop here before it can stop there. When the heart is cleansed here, then the sanctuary can be cleansed as an official statement of what is happening here. It's all about the heart. It's all about the heart. See, we get too tied up in, well, what are the apartments like in heaven? Is there a curtain or a door? And how do they, what is the color? No, no. It's all about the cleansing of the heart. We love details because that gets us away from the matters of the heart. And so he continues, How important then that God's people be holy and without blame. In them every sin must be burned out so that they will be able to stand in the sight of a holy God and live with the devouring fire. Now you say, well, that was just M. L. Andreasen's opinion, wasn't it? Let's try Ellen White. Maranatha, page 249. There must be a purifying of the soul here upon the earth in harmony with Christ's cleansing of the sanctuary in heaven. Purifying, cleansing. And then review in Herald, February 11, 1890. Christ is cleansing the temple in heaven from the sins of the people, and we must work in harmony with him upon the earth, cleansing the soul temple from its moral defilement. Cleansing, cleansing. Two parts of one process. Two parts of one process. By the way, the term is the final atonement. Atoning here to atone there, to cleanse 
from all record of sin. Well, as I said, this is not new light. This is not a new message. What I've been reading to you is over 50 years old. But you say, well, that might have been, and some do say this, that might have been just Andreasen's idea. He had some, uh, he, he was kind of, you know, under censure by the brethren anyway. Maybe he didn't have it all just right. I found a very unique paper written by Gerard Damsteed at the seminary, and he says, the cleansing of the church, according to William Miller and most of his followers, was a cleansing from all sin and apostasy. Ah, maybe we go right back to William Miller's time about this cleansing of the heart. After 1844, faithful Adventists continued to maintain the concept of a dual cleansing. Dual here and there. Heart and heaven. Cleansing in heaven, on earth and cleansing in heaven. Um, neglecting the earthly dimension of the antitypical day of atonement profoundly affected the spiritual condition of the church, the lifestyle of believers, and the impact of their witness on non-members. You see, if we're just saying, well, we're waiting for God to finish his work of cleansing up there. When he cleanses it, he'll step out of the sanctuary, he'll come back to this earth, and we're just waiting. Well, we'll wait for you, God. That has profoundly affected the way we see our mission in the Seventh-day Adventist church. And he says, regressing to the pre-1844 sanctuary view, which confined Christ's minister, ministry to only that of intercessor is a serious neglect of present truth. Christian churches all through those years believed in Christ's intercessory ministry in the, in the sanctuary of heaven. And we have come to kind of echo that. Well, he's just mediating the benefits of what he did at Calvary. He's just sharing what he did, in, uh, sharing the benefits to us of what he did on the cross. And we say that is the final atonement. We've missed the whole thing. No, that's not the final atonement at all. That's what was going on from A.D. 31 to 1844. And many Christians understood that. He says, This provides a false gospel of false assurance in that it fails to tell people what will happen if they reject Christ's final offer of overcoming grace. The true interpretation will retain the two-dimensional or two-level understanding of Christ's Day of Atonement ministry on earth today as well as in heaven. So perhaps it isn't just a modern-day invention. Perhaps William Miller had touches of that in his understanding that the soul must be cleansed, even though he didn't understand the full cleansing of the heavenly sanctuary. But there was the soul cleansing that needed to take place. Someone else has made this comment, and I thought it was worth sharing. He says, there has always been a remnant. There's always been a remnant people of God. But he says the people who composed the remnant through history were not always fully mature or perfect. The criterion for their character was loyalty, not always perfection. The fact that the final generation of mankind closes when the final atonement of Jesus' high priestly mediation is completed sets the last remnant of her seed in a different category than any previous remnant because remnants before had the opportunity to be forgiven. The remnant at the end will no longer have forgiveness available. That's a unique category, a unique period of time, a unique experience. Came across something else in uh, a, a very unique perspective. Alan Reinach is the Religious Liberty Secretary of the Pacific Union Conference. I hope you get to read some of his articles in the Pacific Union Recorder. They are always well thought through and carefully, uh, carefully uh, articulated. 
And then what he has found is that maybe, just maybe, religious liberty and the cleansing of the sanctuary might be connected together. Listen to his thought. Ultimate freedom is found only when we enter the most holy place by faith and experience the complete release from guilt and sin, a much more thorough repentance and cleansing of the heart temple from both conscious and unconscious sin. Ultimate freedom. Ultimate freedom. America suffers from a moral and spiritual crisis, but the solution is not found in political process. It can be found only in new covenant heart religion, the benefits of Christ's high priestly ministry in the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary. Churches today are choosing Caesar over God because they have failed to experience the power of God over sin. This is the direct result of failing to enter the most holy place and wandering about outside. They are grasping at political straws to cure America's moral and spiritual ills as a desperate measure when the only real and, and lasting solution can be in the individual heart transformation that God is so willing to do for us if we enter in by faith. I think he said something. There is how America could ever regain its greatness, is heart transformation, not political laws and, uh, and legislative efforts. Another thought that might be of some help, and I'm sharing more things than I normally get a chance to do, and I thank you for the opportunity to let me do it. Desmond Ford, in his major defense in 1980 of his belief, said something that was true but not understood very well. He said, Few Adventists are aware that the investigative judgment was a latecomer among us. It was not taught by our pioneers in 1845. It was not held by Edson, Crozier, or the Whites during the 1840s. You examine the, re the references and you don't see much about that during that year or two following 1844 because they were just beginning, beginning to understand something about the sanctuary in heaven during those years. What is the real point of 1844. When you think about 1844, when the word is mentioned, October 22, 1844, what is the first thing that usually comes to mind when we think of what God is doing in the heavenly sanctuary? Judgment. The investigative judgment. The books are open. You've seen the pictures. You stand before the judgment throne of God and the heavenly angels watching. Automatically, it comes to mind. Don Neufeld, one of the associate editors of the Review a few years back, said it this way. We should not equate the cleansing of the heavenly sanctuary with the investigative judgment. Striking statement. What does he mean? One should instead say, as did Ellen White, that the cleansing of the sanctuary involves a work of investigation, a work of judgment. Some have not made, borne this distinction in mind and have made the judgment the major significance of 1844. The judgment is an important event, but the final atonement and the blotting out of sin were the items upon which the ritual on the Day of Atonement focused. Now, our pioneers did understand that in the year or two following in 1844. They did understand the cleansing of the heavenly sanctuary and the blotting out of sin, and only after that a few years came an understanding of the investigative judgment. So the real issue of 1844 is not judgment. The real issue is cleansing and blotting out. And if we get that perspective back, I think, we could understand better what final atonement means. Final work of cleansing 
final work of blotting out. And the judgment simply recognizes that fact. It simply approves what God is doing in his cleansing work. And it is not an enemy we have to fear. It is something that will be to our advantage to go through this judgment when God blots out our sins. Let's go back now to that original shadow, which is the type of everything we're talking about today in terms of final atonement. It's in the book of Leviticus, chapter 16. And we'll just look at the very end of the whole day's process, beginning with verse 29. Leviticus chapter 16, verse 29, the day of atonement. And this shall be a statute forever unto you, that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, ye shall afflict your souls. And do no work at all, whether it be one of your own country or a stranger that sojourneth among you. For on that day shall the priest make an atonement for you. Are we really uns uh, scripturally unsound when we say that there is an atonement being made now in the heavenly sanctuary? It says right here, on that day, the priest is making an atonement. Now, they had been offering sacrifices at the altar all during the year. The atonement had been going on. The death of the Messiah was being portrayed in every sacrifice on the altar of burnt offering. But now on the day of atonement, the priest makes an atonement. It's another part of the atoning process. It wasn't ended in the outer court at the altar of burnt offering. We are not on shaky scriptural ground to say that there is a continuing work of atonement in the most holy place. And then it says to cleanse you, that ye may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. There it is, in so many words, in the original shadow type, that this is a work of cleansing. It is a work of removing of sins. Listen to one more statement from the Spirit of Prophecy. We are in the great day of atonement. And the sacred work of Christ for the people of God that is going on at the present time in the heavenly sanctuary should be our constant study. Are we coming anywhere close to that? We should teach our children what the typical day of atonement signified, that it was a special session of great humiliation and confession of sins before God. The antitypical day of atonement is to be of the same character. Are we wondering why we're not getting a message across to our younger generation about what Adventism really is all about? Are we wondering why they are flocking to the other Christian groups to hear how the Baptist young people and how the Pentecostal young people are finding a walk with the Lord and how they're experiencing a happy experience with God? Because we aren't sharing with them anything about final atonement. We are saying God forgives us. God helps us to, to deal with our personal problems day by day. The gospel is about God's love and his mercy and his grace for us and his acceptance of us. Isn't that exactly what the Baptists and the Pentecostals are saying? Why shouldn't they go and find others who are having as good or better experiences than they are? Are we teaching our children what the typical Day of Atonement signifies? Right here, I want to get very practical. The reference, thank you. Testimonies, Volume 5, page 520. Right here, I want to get very practical. 
We've been theological up to this point. Now we're going to abandon that and talk about specifics, maybe of some help. We have certain teachings in the Seventh-day Adventist Church that are different from some of the teachings of the Christian world around us. Why do we do that? Let's take a look at one more text. Ecclesiastes chapter 3. That's a strange place to look for something about the Day of Atonement, isn't it? It could, the book of Ecclesiastes. Third chapter, first verse. To everything there is a season, and a time to every purpose under the heaven. A time to be born, and a time to die. A time to plant, and a time to pluck up that which is planted. Isn't that only common sense, reasonable? You don't go to harvest if you haven't been planting. Verse 4, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. Day of Atonement, what time is that? Time and place. Everything has a time and place. Everything legitimate has time and place. Day of Atonement. Is that, a time, is that the time for laughing? Is that the time for dancing? Hmm. What did we read in the book of Leviticus? Ye shall afflict your souls. Ellen White says a time of great humiliation before God, realizing our weakness and our past record, and not looking very good in our own eyes. Please don't misunderstand. I am not for a moment saying that we shouldn't have a smile on our face, that we can't enjoy a good laugh, that is not the issue. We're talking about an overall perspective here, an overall attitude, a heart, a spirit of the heart. Day of Atonement is mourning time. A Day of Atonement is weeping time for the whole year that has brought to necessity this final day in which the high priest has to risk his life by going into the Shekinah glory and hoping that he can come out alive. And the whole congregation waiting with bated breath to see if the priest will survive that day. This is weeping time. And we've gotten it all mixed up, haven't we? We're celebrating. We're celebrating. What are we celebrating? Not the Day of Atonement. We must be celebrating something else that didn't come from God's Word, but that came because we have a false understanding of the Gospel and salvation. And we're walking a broad road celebrating our way along. We've gotten something twisted. We've gotten a misconception because we have forgotten about final atonement and day of atonement. And therefore, we say, well, shouldn't we celebrate forgiveness of sins? Shouldn't we celebrate the death and resurrection of Christ? Shouldn't we celebrate the truth of the Sabbath? Yes, we should celebrate all those things. But when is the celebration really to take place? Ah, on the sea of glass. I used to tell my students that I will be happy to learn any dance steps that God chooses to teach me on the sea of glass. Right now, I don't think I could handle them very well. I would make a mess of it. We are not in the dancing and laughing time. We are, the, we are in the serious time of Earth's history, the most serious time that Earth has ever seen in 6,000 years. And our focus needs to be sober and righteous, as the New Testament tells us. 
soberly, carefully, thinking it through, not making quick judgments, understanding what God is all about and what he's attempting to do. Now let's apply that. Seventh-day Adventists have some unique teachings. We believe in vegetarianism. And our Christian friends have challenged us. What do you mean by that? Where do you find that in the Bible? Didn't they have a list of meats that they ate that were supposed to be clean? And didn't they do that? Didn't even Abraham prepare a dinner of meat for the heavenly messengers? And what about Jesus himself? Didn't he eat the Passover lamb with his family growing up as a boy? Every year? What do you Adventists mean? You're adding to Scripture. You're adding some of your own personal biases into the clear teaching of Scripture. You are making an extra standard that the Bible doesn't teach. And that has gotten pretty persuasive, even to many Seventh-day Adventists, right? But this isn't quite as important as we thought it was. And then there is alcohol. You look carefully in the Bible and you'll have a really hard time finding teetotaling as a principle carried through consistently in the Bible. What, is the, what are the elders and the deacons not to do? Drink much wine. Don't get drunk. That's what they're not supposed to do. What about in the Old Testament where the princes are having trouble, the leaders of the people are having trouble, and they are suggested that they might take a little strong drink to drown their troubles. It's there. Why do we make a huge issue of it? Why don't we simply say be moderate in all things? Moderation is the principle. Don't overdo, even in alcohol usage. And that has become persuasive among Seventh-day Adventists in some places. And then there's another thing that Seventh-day Adventists have kind of um, uh, gotten a little interested in these days. Here's a letter. The Bible is more pro-jewelry than anti-jewelry. Job, whom God said was righteous, received several gold rings from relatives. Joseph received a ring and gold chain from Pharaoh. Abraham sent Rebekah a gold ring for her nose two gold bracelets, and gold and silver jewelry. And when God was speaking of unfaithful Jerusalem, he spoke of the love he had for her and the jewelry he had given her. And there are texts for each one of these uh, points that are being made. And so Seventh-day Adventists have taught that uh, jewelry is not to be worn. As I look around, I'm finding that... Um, a fair number of Seventh-day Adventists not too far from where we're sitting think that maybe this letter has more soundness than our previous beliefs. That perhaps this is an outdated custom that we can't really be as sure about as we used to. It's not that important in God's sight. It's purely a matter of preference. Well, what about it? Is Adventism going a step farther than the Bible? Are these customs that need to be adjusted in light of better understandings, more sophisticated knowledge of God? Let me now leave that for a moment and address some other issues. Where did the twelve tribes come from? What was their origin? 
There were 12 sons, right, of Jacob. Where did those 12 sons come from? Now, that's what we really want to look at for a moment. Would you like to be Jacob in his household? And before you answer too quickly, really think about it. Here is Jacob. He has worked seven years to marry the love of his life. And what does he get? What the father-in-law decided would be the love of his life. And he was bound by contract. He couldn't avoid it. So he works seven more years for the love of his life. And they live happily ever after. Ah, what happened with the one he loved, Rachel? No children. No children. And what does that mean in the society of Near Eastern life? Cursed by God. Und no blessings. God had shown her to be out of favor. Who has the children? Leah. Leah has the children. Can you imagine what is going on in that little family as Leah taunts Rachel with her supposed favored status with her husband and God's blessing upon Leah? So what does Rachel suggest to Jacob? I need a helper. We've got to get this thing fixed. Life is unbearable. Here's a helper wife. She will be my helper wife. You produce children through her and they will be my children because of legal standing. She is my assistant wife. And can you think that Jacob said, wow, what am I getting into? Don't think that it was all great for Jacob. I don't think any of us would have wanted to be in Jacob's shoes. Because you see, what then happens? Because the assistant wife produces children. And as Leah looking on, she says, that's just fine, no problem. No, she says, not fair, two against one. If Rachel can have an assistant, I can have an assistant, Jacob, and you better live with that right now. Get used to it. That's the way it is in this family. And so she has an assistant wife. And 12 children come out of that mess. Twelve children who you know the story, they're squabbling with each other, they're competing as to who the favored mother is in the household, they are ready to kill a brother if they, because that brother is seen to be the favorite son, and they become the, the leaders of the chosen nation. They become the twelve tribes of Israel. And names, their names are going to be inscribed on the New Jerusalem. That proves that polygamy is blessed by God. Well, it does, doesn't it? Didn't he bless the result of all of that? The whole tribes of Israel came out of that. They are our spiritual ancestors. We are spiritual Israel, aren't we? That was literal Israel. Yes, God blessed a polygamous relationship of not two, but four wives, and the bickering that went with it. Proof from Scripture, without a shadow of a doubt. Can you guess why there have been certain Christian religions that have said polygamy is taught in the Bible? Of course it is. It's there. God did allow and bless it. Well, let's try another one.
let's say you were in another country next to Israel and uh, Israel uh, you had done something bad to Israel and Israel had now come to get revenge and take back what was theirs and you happened to be in one of those households that was conquered by the Israelite armies and you would be taken back as a slave to the family of Israel that had conquered your town or your village now there was one thing about being a slave in Israel that was different from being a slave in foreign countries. In foreign countries, that was it for the rest of your life. You had no hope. You would be a slave, and there was no getting out of it. In Israel, there was a different procedure. You could be held as a slave for six years, maximum, against your will. On the seventh year, you would go free, unless you had come to love that household they had treated you well they had cared for you they had shown you love not anger and, and bitterness and they had treated you as a child or as a as a, a servant in the household and you could choose if it was your own free will to remain a slave or servant in that household for the rest of your life you remember how they did it marching right up to the post of the house the front porch piercing your ear ah, piercing your ear isn't that interesting piercing your ear with an awl, which we would call an ice pick, and that would be the symbol that you would be a voluntary servant of that household for your lifetime. On the basis of that, isn't it clear that God approved of slavery? And this is not theoretical, folks. Guess what arguments were used in our own country not too many years ago? Well in our lifetime many years ago but in the sweep of history not many years ago of course God authorized slavery he showed it in the Bible and any evidence to prove otherwise is a is a counterfeit of the Word of God that was the argument of the slaveholders of the United States of America slavery allowed regulated and permitted by the God of heaven even in the New Testament folks Remember the story of Philemon and Onesimus? When Onesimus had run away, he was converted under Paul in Rome. And what did Paul do? He sent him back to Philemon. He just wrote a letter urging Philemon to accept him as a brother. But that wasn't mandatory. It was Paul's advice, his counsel. But he sent the slave back to his owner. And he said, Paul would, I, Paul, will be responsible for any financial loss that you have incurred see property property New Testament New Testament no abolition of slavery even in the New Testament do you see the arguments that could be used to endorse slavery in modern times let's try another one how would you have felt if you were standing right at the side of Moses after he came down from Mount Sinai and the people had danced around the calf and the Lord was angry and Moses was angry and here was Moses calling all those who are loyal to God stand by me and the Levite tribe comes and stands by Moses and then what does Moses say go out and kill those of your brothers of your co-Israelites who were unfaithful to God in this terrible rebellion go out and kill them one by one hand to hand how would you have felt would you have been comfortable that day you today with your values you with your understanding of what should and shouldn't be done would you have been comfortable that day 
under God's command through Moses' chosen messenger to kill those that you had been talking to yesterday? Do you see, again, how a just war in the United States can be justified? The right, the struggle of right against wrong, good against evil. God allowed it, he permitted it, he endorsed it, he commanded it, and of course we should go out and drop bombs on weaker people because they're bad and we're good. Do you see how easy it is to defend what human beings want to defend these days? I've just named three. We could go farther. Polygamy, slavery, and killing. <laughs> we will let that be a subject for thought and reflection. Okay, all right. In other words, we can defend a whole lot of things, a whole lot of things based on texts in the Bible that today we're not comfortable with. Now, here's the point. Why were all of those things allowed and approved by God? Can you give me a simple answer? Be no. <laughs> That's not it. Because of the hardness of men's hearts. And because of the ignorance of the times. Acts 17, verse 30, what does it say God does? He winks at the ignorance of the people because they had not a chance to know. Israel had come out from slavery. They knew precious little about God, the great controversy. They knew hardly anything about God's characteristics. And he was treating them as an infant would be treated. And an infant. And God allows things to be in those times because of the hardness. Didn't Jesus say that precisely? Divorce, on the issue of divorce, because of the hardness of men's hearts. But it was not so. It was not God's will. It was not God's purpose. It was not God's plan. Here is the biggest single way that we need to understand the Bible. It is the biggest mistake that is made even by us today. We must always differentiate between those things which are allowed by God because of the hardness of men's hearts but which are not His will from those things which are truly His will, His plan, and His purpose. And if we do not do that, we will make all kinds of serious mistakes. It is the greatest single problem in interpreting the Bible that we may have. We even do it in the area of righteousness by faith. We take the texts that say, all men are sinners, there is not one righteous, no, not one. Uh, can, the, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? And we say, there it is, we'll be sinners till Jesus comes. And we ignore all the texts that say, what happens after we're born again? One, one group of texts explains the way it was before Christ, one after Christ. We jumble them together and we make the Bible say the opposite of what it means to say. Yes, we do need to be good hermeneutical interpreters of the Bible. That's a big long word. We need to interpret the Bible accurately and put together what is God's plan, what is his will, and what is his allowance. There are two different things. And that is where the spirit of prophecy is of so much help. So much help. Without that, we will get confused on what God allowed and what God will. We need to have extra help on this one and to understand God's will. All right, now let's bring it back to our original question. What about vegetarianism? Where does that fit in this whole process? What do you think? God's will or the hardness of men's hearts. 
what is God's will specifically outlined throughout the Bible as the ultimate purpose? What was God's diet as God created mankind? What will be God's diet as he recreates this earth and all of human nature? They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. There will be not... You know, when I walk into heaven... Now, I realize that in the, in, the, in the ignorance of men's hearts, there will be many people who walk into heaven not knowing what to expect. But when I walk into heaven, I want to walk in without culture shock. When I walk into heaven and view that great table spread out for as far as the eye can see, am I going to be looking for a Big Mac on that table? Some will. Some will. Martin Luther will be looking for his tankard of ale. He had it every night. Every night. A tankard of ale. He will be looking for that on the great table spread out. And it won't be there. And he'll have to be re-educated. Yes. Re-educated in God's kindergarten class. I would love to be able to walk into heaven and see everything on that table that I have enjoyed most on this earth and sit down to the best feast that I could ever imagine and not say, where, where are the missing things? I, I'm missing some things. They aren't here. God's plan is clearly a vegetarian diet. God's will. God's allowance because of the flood and other things and the hardness of men's hearts is a meat diet. That's why Day of Atonement, Final Atonement is important right here because we are living in this very end time of earth's history the time in which we're just ready to march right up into heaven all right what about alcohol although there are evidences that alcohol was allowed in the bible aren't there clear evidences that it was not god's will it's not that hard to find is it you just look at two women in the book of well no let's that's the next step you just look at the evidences that god says it is when it stirs itself in the glass beware and he talks about the dangers that it causes and, and the evidence today is pretty clear that they didn't have back then, right? Brain cells, brain cells, quickly and, 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 and des destroyed by this fermented brew that men have created. Now coming to jewelry. Although we can find evidences that the Bible does allow jewelry, isn't there also clear evidence and here is where we come to the book of Revelation of the difference between two women. Two women, have you noticed that? And how they're described in the book of Revelation, one with the jewelry of heaven and one with the jewelry of earth. There is a difference. And when God's people truly repented in the Old Testament, what usually came off? And what came on when they rebelled? It is a pattern all through the Bible. And Paul makes a very strong statement about not the outward but the inward is what we want to see as Christians. Are we also taking God's allowances for the hardness of men's hearts to also supply the hardness of our hearts? Aren't we doing the same thing? And using as an excuse for our personal desires God's allowance. If God is going to allow jewelry, meat-eating, and alcohol, then perhaps he is also going to allow in our time polygamy, slavery, and killing. They are all a package. All a package. And we have to decide what package we want to opt for. We don't think very well sometimes, do we, on these issues. 
We simply say, well, God allowed it. He's merciful. He's loving. And it isn't a matter that he's going to be concerned about. And we miss it. The day of atonement, the final atonement, is the time in which God's children are going to be asking for the highest level, the closest thing to heaven that earth can provide, the way that they can just walk right into heaven without culture shock. The clothing will be, will be beautiful and they will love it and they won't have to ask, where are those extra things that I used to have on my, bed, my drawer before I went out? No, no, no more of that at all. We just walk right into heaven. The final generation will be the vindicators of God's ultimate will, not his permissive allowance. Key principle that we need to understand, and this, perhaps, is what we need to be teaching our children, isn't it? And we're missing it. We're missing it. We're simply asking the question, is this allowable? Does, will God, is this a sin? And did you hear that so often? Is it a sin too? Wow, that's the narrow view, isn't it? There are some things which are not sin, but don't help God's cause any. Uh, they just don't vindicate God very well. And our focus is not upon what is sin and what is not, but what vindicates God and what vindicates Satan. Our focus needs to be different. And so I'll conclude. Remember I said that this was not an original teaching of my time or M.L. Andreasen's time. Now I'll go back to 1888 and the messengers that were sent to prepare God's people for translation at that time of earth's history. The finishing of the mystery of God is the ending of the work of the gospel. And the ending of the work of the gospel is first the taking away of all vestige of sin and the bringing in of everlasting righteousness. Christ fully formed within each believer. God alone manifest in the flesh of each believer in Jesus. Therefore, the very first work in the cleansing of the sanctuary was the cleansing of the people. If you get nothing else out of this morning, that's it. The cleansing of the sanctuary is the cleansing of the people. That was preliminary and essential to the cleansing of the sanctuary itself, to the finishing of the transgression, and bringing in everlasting righteousness in the heart and life of each one of the people themselves. When the stream that flowed into the sanctuary was thus stopped at its source, then and then alone could the sanctuary itself be cleansed from the sins and transgressions which from the people, by the intercession of the priests, had flowed into the sanctuary. Therefore, by this, we are plainly taught that the service of our great high priest in the cleansing of the true sanctuary must be preceded by the cleansing of each one of the believers, the cleansing of each one who has a part in that service of the true high priest in the true sanctuary. So when you think of 1844, and when you think of Jesus in the sanctuary above, the word cleansing should be the first thing that comes to our minds. Cleansing, blotting out. Not judgment. That's secondary. Cleansing. The reference, a good, re good point. Uh, there is a good reference for this in The Consecrated Way to Christian Perfection by A.T. Jones, pages 113 to 119. A very, very nice summary of everything I'm reading here. All right. The Consecrated Way to Christian Perfection by A.T. Jones, pages 113 to 119. And one last word from God's inspired servant. She said, Christ is cleansing the heavenly sanctuary from the sins of the people. And it is the work of all who are laborers together with God to be cleansing the sanctuary of the soul from everything that is offensive to him. 
everything like evil surmising, envy, jealousy, enmity, and hatred will be put away. Did you notice she didn't say alcohol and tobacco and, and going about and doing bad things outwardly? These are the real sins of the heart. Envy, evil surmising, jealousy, enmity, and hatred. For such things grieve the Holy Spirit of God and put Christ to an open shame. Love of self will not exist, nor will any engaged in this work be puffed up. The example of Christ's life, the consistency of his character, will make his influence far-reaching. He will be a living epistle known and read of all men. That's a manuscript, manuscript 15, 1886. Well, my friends, that's the cleansing of the sanctuary. That's the final atonement. That's what Adventism is all about. That's the uniqueness. That's the one thing we have contributed to theology. And it is very practical, very practical, in the way we live our daily lives. And I'd like us to be part of the final atonement, final generation. We dare not talk about last generation without talking about final atonement. There will be no last generation without the atonement cleansing our hearts. There will be no last generation without that happening. That is what God is waiting for. He's not waiting for some proclamation out of Washington, D.C. He's waiting for the heart to be cleansed of all sin. Let's kneel for a final prayer together. Father, you have opened up your sanctuary. You have opened that door into the most holy place that no one has been able to enter except Jesus Christ by right. And now, Lord, we want to enter in with Jesus into that most holy place experience. We want to know what is happening there today, right now, today, as we are worshiping on this earth today. We want to know what makes a difference in our lives because of what Jesus is doing there today that will change us today. And so, Lord, come into our hearts. Impress a new vision in our minds that we may see with divinely opened eyes into that ho most holy place, into the presence of God, into Jesus Christ's ministry, and we may take advantage of that power, that energy, that living force that will change us completely. That we will want to have this experience transform our lives so we will never again be quibbling about details but wanting to know how closely we can come to your will and your plan in our daily lives. That we will not be judgmental, that we will not live holier than thou, but we will always realize our weakness and our unfaithfulness in so many ways and we will concentrate on reflecting the image of Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to be transformed, not outwardly, but inwardly, which flows outwardly. May we have this experience today, direct from the heavenly sanctuary, with no barriers between. May our prayers enter right into that most holy place, not stopping outside for any reason. I ask in Jesus' name, amen.